Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome everyone to EM Guidewire. I'm one of your devoted guides, Sean Fox, and I normally would be speaking to you from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. But today instead, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm recording to you from my closet. Yeah, so instead of super nice mics and fancy sound padding, I have a bunch of sweaters and shirts and, well, my laptop. Obviously, the normal EM Guidewire team cannot congregate together in the studio, but we still have been wanting to release important and timely content to you all. Fortunately, our EM residency conferences have been able to continue to fluidly occur in virtual space, much thanks to the direction of my colleague, Dr. Brian Allen and EM Guidewire teammate extraordinaire. So when possible, we will continue to endeavor to deliver to you all through EM Guidewire's podcast and website some of the high-yield content that our EM residency continues to produce. This week, very timely topics indeed, Dr. Russell Tregonis, an EM Guidewire alum and super fan, obviously, who is now a critical care fellow up at Indiana University, will be covering how to expertly manage ARDS in the days of COVID. You can also view the entire talk on EM Guidewire's website under the Global EM section. I would also encourage you to listen to his talk on ventilator setup, an episode that occurred last year and is under core concept section. Once again, Dr. Tregonis will walk you through some very important details. So, without further deliberation or debate, here is Dr. Tregonis. I'll turn it over to Big Red. Thank you so much, Brian. Can everyone see the screen okay? Everything looks all right? Looks perfect. And can you see the mouse moving around? Yes. Okay, perfect. Well, team, I first want to say I just I miss all you people so much. I mean, I miss most of you so much, but a couple of you I miss a lot. Just want you to know that. Uh, so yeah, I'm reaching out from IU. I actually did a kind of similar lecture to this for the EM residents here, and I'm trying to do one really for the people who are near and dear, true to my heart, the CMC crew. So with that in mind, I just kind of want to go through what you guys are going to be doing as far as ventilator management for these new COVID patients. So let's see. So as always, we start off with a delightful little case. We've got a 62-year-old female who recently returned from Northern Italy. She was on a cruise ship because, of course, she was. She had a long layover in New York, and then she ate dinner with her sister visiting from Washington State. So she also comes in with fever, cough, progressive shortness of breath, and she's hypoxic on a non-rebreather. Now, obviously, all of our COVID patients are coming in with these classic chief complaints, and every single one of them looks like this. That's this is this is bad that I can't hear people laughing because I like to believe all my jokes are great. I just have kind of silence on the other end. But uh, obviously, this is not going to be true with the patients that we're seeing. We're going to be seeing patients with any type of chief complaint in the world. They're going to come. Everything is now going to be community acquired. We're not going to have this classic phenotype for these patients. The thing we need to take away, though, that's been shown again and again is that if these patients are hypoxic or if you have a hypoxic patient, you have to assume this is a bad situation and we have to do something about it. Now, my talk isn't going to be about intubating these patients. I'm sure Dr. Gibbs and everyone else has kind of went through all of the different techniques you guys are going to have for intubation. And you being EM docs, being trained in RSI, you will be the single best intubators for these patients. I can say that very confidently. I haven't seen a lot of the critical care way that we look at these things, but with the EM doc way, with the RSI, whatever, using all the protection you need, you guys know how to intubate them. The next question though, is what are we going to do? So at CMC, we immediately intubate them and we call it a code critical and we're kind of done with it. The next step normally involves doing a post COVID selfie uh, with all of the kind of appropriate hashtags to send out to all your friends to make sure they know how much of a badass you are for intubating nonstop COVID patients. After that, you've basically dispoed the patient. The patient's been taken care of. They've got there. They, we know it. They're going to have a long hospital course from this progressive respiratory failure. So at our shop, we call the illustrious Dr. Haley, and he says the problem, unfortunately, is our hospital's filling up, and we don't really have any ICU beds right now. But what we're going to need you. So what we're going to need you to do is we're going to need to do what? You're going to have to manage those patients down there instead. For this. I'm hearing a lot of clicking. I don't know if that's something. 
so what, what we need to do from this is figure out how we're going to do ARDS ventilation for these patients. And if we want to bring this down to just kind of our core concepts, what we're looking at, what are the tips that ARDS trials in the past have taught us about how to not kill these patients? Number one, the thing that gets stressed again and again and again is that these patients do better with low tidal volume. The ARDSnet study is literally the only study in critical care that's actually proven something. Thing. Most of them just spend all the time disproving what someone else said before. But the ARDSnet protocol actually did show a huge difference in mortality in patients who were given the low tidal volume versus the big tidal volumes. So our goal is going to be the 4 to 8 cc per kg based on the ideal body weight. Next thing is we're going to be trying to target a component of we're not trying to fill them up up all the way to the top with oxygen. You're just shooting for a PO2 of 55 to 80, which are made up numbers because we're not drawing ABGs down in the ED. So instead you're focusing on getting a pulse ox somewhere between 88 and 95% for these patients. And then finally, something that we don't think that much about honestly is what peak and plateau pressures we're seeing on the vent. And I wanna kind of go into a little bit of this today with this talk, but the, what we, what we know from these ARDS patients is you want to shoot for plateau pressures less than 30. So the pressure the lung is actually seeing is less than 30. Some people also look at driving pressure or what's going to be the difference between, or what's going to be the difference between uh, the PEEP and the plateau pressure that you're getting. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But these are the three core concepts that we have for trying to take care of these ARDS patients. So let's go to our ventilator itself. We can say all of these fancy things, but what actually, what actually matters is what buttons you can hit on the ventilator to make the change to make. So these are gonna be the five settings that we're gonna adjust for the ventilator for these patients. Now, some of these slides I used in a lecture last year and they might look familiar, but I'll try and throw a COVID theme onto most of them. So number one, starting off with the ventilator mode itself. So what mode are we gonna to use to ventilate these patients? We're gonna use the same thing that we always use. It's gonna be PRVC. Now PRVC, we don't need to get into the semantics of it, but in short, we set a volume. We say we want this patient to get this amount of air. So we type or we input what the tidal volume is going to be. We can also set the respiratory rate, but we have to know that if the patient breathes above, let's say we set a respiratory rate of 18. If that patient's breathing 22 times a minute, it is going to support all 22 of those breaths to try and get them up to that set tidal, tidal volume. In addition, it's a very smart ventilator mode. Basically, there's little, uh, I think there's little people walking around inside of it who measure the pressure, how it is delivered to the patient and try to make little modifications. Do I need to give more pressure to get to that next tidal volume? Do I need to give less pressure? Do I wanna give the pressure more upfront early on in the breath or do I make it a slow, gradual breath? It does all these fancy calculations to determine the ideal way to deliver that breath to get to that volume. The problem with it though is pressure and volume are gonna be kind of dependent variables upon each other. If you change one, you're going to impact the other. So if we are setting volume, then we're gonna impact pressures. So the numbers that we care about then, we're gonna type in the volume. The vent's gonna give that patient that volume, whether they want it or not. But we have to watch what peak or plateau pressures we're gonna see for that patient. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. The other basic modes on ventilators that we sometimes see are volume control modes or pressure control modes. In short, you can ignore this. One of the biggest things that I've learned from a critical care fellowship so far is we spend all of this time learning about all these, all these thousands of things that ventilators can do. And in 99.9% .9 of patients, you just use PRVC and say, yeah, that, that, that's what sounds right. Pressure control is the fancy thing that uh, like pulmonologists will use to give you pretty numbers and they say, oh, this is actually a little bit more comfortable for the patient. But again and again, PRVC is what's actually better. The cool thing about pressure control is if we get to the point that we're splitting vents and doing things like that, pressure control ventilation will be the key to how we'll do it. And guys, if I'm talking too fast, if, there, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out despite what Brian said about him not wanting to hear your voices. So next, go into the title volume for these patients. Like we said this fancy ARDSnet study came up with an ideal tidal volume of four to eight cc's per kg based off of ideal body weight. Now what that means is we don't actually care about the person's body weight, we care about their height. So you can, if you look at the person, you figure out what their height is and you do a fancy calculation called MD calc, it's going to tell you exactly what we're going for. 
So in a five foot 10 male, that four to eight cc's per kg is gonna come somewhere around between 300 and 580 cc's for each patient. For a female patient, an average American 5'4 female, that volume range is gonna be between 220 and 440. Now, ranges are, all things considered, pretty stupid. No one remembers ranges. You just remember a single number and you kind of go based off of that. So with that in mind, the numbers I want you guys to keep in mind are for a male, an average male patient, assume a tidal volume of 500. For an average female patient, assume a tidal volume of 400. Once again, I say average based off of size, based off of height, not off of weight. That's what matters. 500 and 400 is probably going to be around seven and a half C or excuse me, six and a half to seven cc's per kg. So it is a little bit on the upper end of the tidal volume curve or between that four and eight that we're shooting for. But we found that with these patients, they actually do have pretty good compliance. So I say start with these numbers. They're easy to remember. And then we'll talk about how to titrate them if they're not good for your patient. So going back to our vent, we figured out number one, we're putting this patient on PRVC. Number two, uh, we're setting a tidal volume because this patient from my made up case study is a, a female. We're gonna set her tidal volume to 400. The next variable that we have to put in is gonna be our respiratory rate. Now, if we remember our tidal volume and our respiratory rate together are gonna determine the patient's minute ventilation or how much we're able to ventilate them. So what you're doing for this is you're basically just gonna be titrating it to the patient's CO2. We may or may not have an initial blood gas on the patient, but I honestly don't care. You're just gonna pick a regular rate and then you're gonna get a BBG 30 minutes later, an hour later, and you're gonna change the rate based off of that. With that in mind, I think a simple number to remember is 20. So these patients often have increased, they often have a degree of hypoxia. They're a little bit air hungry. And despite the sedation, they're probably going to be tachypnic. So I just set a rate at 20 and then we let that kind of work from there. You'll check a gas 30 minutes later and you can change that respiratory rate based off of that. So we've talked about the mode, we've talked about the volume, we've talked about the respiratory rate, which has given us our minute ventilation. Now let's move on to the last two things, the PEEP and the FiO2. These are gonna be the most important things about these patients because right now, the primary reason we're intubating these patients is hypoxic respiratory failure. We don't normally see hypercapnia. It's not normally about mental status. It's not normally about all the other things we're intubating patients for. We're intubating them because they're in hyper, excuse me, they're in hypoxic respiratory failure. So we're gonna use these two variables to try and titrate their oxygen. So PEEP and FiO2, like I said, our goal is going to be oxygen. Now, what our actual numerical goal is going to be is sats between 88 and 95%, or if you get an ABG, which once again, there's almost no reason to get an ABG on these patients up front, you would be going between 55 and 80. Now, these magical numbers were made up because of this curve you probably guys remember from med school, your uh, PaO2 versus is oxygen versus oxyhemoglobin saturation curve. And what we're trying to do is we're just trying to get our patients into the safe zone. If we see, this is our SATs over here, we see that once our SAT drops below 88, we start hitting the steeper part of the curve here so that if that patient has any other insult, anything else happens to them, they'll plummet down pretty quickly. That also lines up about with our PaO2 of 55. So that's where those numbers came from. We just want to keep patients on this side of the curve so that we have a little bit of a buffer in case they get worse. Now, the way we're going to look at how we get them to that point on the oxygen curve is using, like we said, our FiO2 and our PEEP, but I want you to visualize higher FiO2 is just physically giving the patient more oxygen. You went from 50% to 60% to 70%. You were just giving them more oxygen. What the PEEP does is it lets you use that oxygen more efficiently. So if we think about the actual physiology of what we're seeing with these patients in you or I, and most of us that have normal lungs other than Steven Jackson, who smokes like a chimney, we have pretty compliant lungs without much atelectasis. Still, a couple of us are going to have a few alveoli that are collapsed at any point in time, which is this kind of grayish alveoli here. Now, air is gonna come in, go to the different alveoli, and then the capillaries that run underneath it are gonna hopefully do some gas exchange going from deoxygenated blood to oxygenated blood on the other side. Normally, most of our alveoli participate in this, so we get a good bit of bright red blood, but even at rest, we all have some blood that goes to non-aerated alveoli, so you get kind of an intrapulmonary shunt. Some of this blood doesn't get deoxygenated. However, there's normally a big ratio where the oxygenated much outweighs our deoxygenated, so we do fine. 
if we take that same lung and we give them COVID or what we've seen with these patients, they get this huge amount of inflammation at the level of the alveoli itself. You lose some surfactant production, you just break down that whole basement membrane. Now the problem is we are shunting a much larger proportion of our blood. Only a couple of alveoli actually can participate in gas exchange and a bunch of the alveoli no longer can participate. These alveoli have collapsed. There's no way to get oxygen in there to try and get it in the blood. So our blood comes out the other side dark, darker. If we can give these patients more PEEP, we can try to restore them back to normal physiology. We can perk back up those, uh, those those alveoli so that we can give the oxygen. Now, if we look again at this, it doesn't matter how much oxygen I give this person. If I give this person 100% FiO2, we would just have 100% FiO2 going into the single alveoli. So these red blood cells would be feeling great. They'd be well oxygenated, but that 100% isn't going to get down here. On the other side with this, I could just give 30 or 40% FiO2, but because it's hitting all of my alveoli, because it's more efficient, more of my blood is going to get oxygenated. So we get more bright red blood coming out the other side. So in COVID, we found this to be true, just like I said, and there are even more mechanisms for it. This is kind of our normal alveoli, and not only does the alveoli have to stay open to preserve itself, alveoli actually have some kind of intraventricular dependence between the different sacs, so that each one being popped open keeps the other ones at their ideal size and shape to participate in gas exchange. If we have this COVID virus, so we've seen we have increased inflammation, increased pneumocyte destruction, and we have altered surfactant production, we now will knock out initially just a small portion of the lung. This is what gets infected. However, the rest of our parenchyma gets distorted from this. So now all of these alveoli are crappy in their way to kind of perfuse, or in their way to kind of participate in gas exchange like they want to. This actually has a fancy phrase for it, malignant atelectasis sounds real sex phenomenon that we're seeing. If we give this patient more pressure, more PEEP, or more importantly, more mean airway pressure, which we'll talk about next, we can try and restore them back down to our normal shape, our normal gradient, so that we can help these patients more. So as of today, our recommendation is to use high PEEP. As you guys are probably getting inundated with as much as I am, literally new studies are coming out every single day and half of them say one thing, half of them say something else. One of the Italian studies from a couple of days ago said, hey, actually our patients did better with, with, less, with uh, lower peeps or with normal peeps. I'm just ignoring them because they're kind of Italian in that and everything that's going on. But in general, right now, most of our evidence is saying that we should be using high peep for these patients. And this is supported by kind of our old ARDS information. So as far as what we pick as our low and high PEEP, this is the original table from the ARDSNET trial that actually looked at two different PEEP levels. One used lower PEEP, higher FiO2. The other one used higher PEEP, lower FiO2, and saying that they randomized patients between these two arms and actually didn't see a difference between the two. They just found that using PEEP was good. There didn't seem to be an advantage of the higher PEEP versus the lower PEEP. But since with these patients, we've seen them being more responsive to higher PEEPs, I say we're going to stick with this lower one, but I'll actually show you how to use this table in the next couple of slides here. Mind, when you set up these ventilators, when I gave you this lecture last year, I told you set everyone at a PEEP of five. Now, if you have these patients, you have concern for COVID, you have a chest x-ray with kind of this bi with bilateral infiltrate or just they're super hypoxic, set the PEEP to 10. A PEEP of 10 is absolutely safe on these patients and it should be now kind of our initial setting that we go for and then we'll talk about how to titrate that. So going back to our vent, we now have our vent on PRVC. We have a tidal volume of 400. We have a respiratory rate of 20 and you're setting your PEEP to 10. Now with FiO2, normally the way we set FiO2 FiO2 is we intubate the patient, we tell the RT, hey, those vent settings look good, and we walk out of the room. But what we can do a little bit more with this, normally these patients are going to get put on 100% FiO2 initially, which is fine. You want to give them plenty of oxygen early on. And that's what will happen. You put in the tube, the RT bumps it up to 100%, and that way the patient just gets plenty of good oxygen during those first couple of breaths. Normally the RT will then go back in and kind of titrate down that FiO2 as needed, and will kind of slowly work down to more kind of physiologic levels. So they don't need to have SATs of 100%. We can wean them down from there. However, I don't want you guys to wait for the RTs to do this. And I want you to be a little bit more aggressive with it. And I'll kind of show you why. 
when you walk, you can leave the patient on 100% right after you've intubated them, especially if they were a little bit hypoxic when they came in. And then if someone like Blackwell did the intubation and was mucking around in the airway for a long time, they probably did de-recruit pretty heavily. So we can leave them on 100% for a short period of time. But I want you, before you walk out of that room, before they're even coming in to do the chest x-ray, I want you to turn it down to 50%. So you just go over to the vent and you turn it down to 50%. Obviously, if they desat to 60 when you do that, you can go back up. But most of the time, their sats will drop maybe to the high to mid 80s. But I want you to do that early on so that we can then try and titrate our PEEP to help us out. So when you walk out of the room with these patients, I want this to be the initial vent settings you've left them on. They're on PRVC. They're on a tidal volume of four or 500, depending on their sex. They have a respiratory rate of 20, a PEEP of 10, and an FiO2 of 50%. So once you have your vent set, normally we just walk out of the room and we ignore it. And that's normally the right thing because this patient's going up to the ICU. However, as you guys are going to see more and more and more, these patients are going to be in the ED for a while, or they're going to be going from the ED to a hallway somewhere in the ICU where they're going to sit there. So we need to know the basics of how to titrate the vent to optimize this patient. And the best way to titrate the vent is just wait till it's starts beeping at you, and then start titrating it. I mean, honestly, these vents are designed to be relatively on autopilot. So our titrations should mostly be focused on getting the alarms fixed. What's going on wrong with the patient and what can we fix? So the first alarm I want to talk about isn't actually on the vent. It's going to be on your patient itself, but when the patient has a low pulse ox. So once again, our goal sats are 88%. So if the nurse or someone comes out and says, hey, that patient keeps beeping at 89%, do you want to do anything? Do you want to give them an O2 breath? What else can we do to try and perk them up? Say, nope, I'm good. 88% is all we need to shoot for on these patients. You don't need to try and overshoot that limit right now. If, we're, if our SATs are staying below 88%, though, we do need to make an intervention. And the intervention that we're going to do is we're going to try and increase our mean airway pressure. So what is it? that mean? Mean airway pressure has a fancy formula to it, but the way I want you guys to is just like we look at our maps. Mean airway pressure is looking at what's the pressure during your inspiration, so that's the higher pressure when you're taking that big breath in or with a ventilator, we're blowing that big breath in with the high pressure, what that pressure is and how long they're staying in inspiration. Then you also combine that with their expiratory pressure. So for these patients, their peak and how long they're in expiration. If they spend more time in inspiration, that's like having a higher systolic pressure. If they spend more time in expiration, it's like having a higher diastolic pressure. Now, when we look at curves for it, if you have an A-line in patients, it's constantly calculating the map as kind of an area under the curve. It looks at how long you're spending at your systolic time, how long you're spending, spending in your diastolic time, and it calculates the map from that. We learned to calculate it that it's just one-third times your systolic plus two-thirds times your diastolic because we spend about a third of our time in systole and two-thirds of our time in diastole. That's not going to be true in the way that we breathe. The amount of time we spend in inspiration and expiration is kind of variable, but on the vent, it's, the patient doesn't have a choice. We are setting it for them and we're telling them what it is. Now, so with that in mind, the way that we can impact our mean airway pressure is by either increasing their inspiratory pressure or their inspiratory pressure times time or increasing their expiratory pressure times time. So we're either increasing their systolic pressures or their diastolic pressures. The first way that we go about that is actually by increasing our patient's PEEP. So we're trying to increase their diastolic pressures or their expiratory pressures. If we bump up their PEEP from a PEEP of five before now to a PEEP of 10 so that our PEEP is now sitting here and then our inspiratory pressure just a little bit above that, our mean pressure jumps up pretty substantially. We went from 11 to 16 just by going up five on our PEEP. So we had a pretty significant increase in our mean airway pressure, which is really gonna be the thing that keeps those alveoli open for a longer period of time and lets you exchange oxygen. So the first way that we'll increase our mean airway pressure is we'll increase our PEEP. And this is what we're going to use our PEEP tables for. And this is what we're gonna use our PEEP tables for. The second way we can increase our mean airway pressure, instead of just increasing our PEEP or our expiratory phase of it, we can actually change the ratio of how long we spend in inspiration versus how long we spend at expiration. If I do something called prolonging my eye time or increasing my inspiratory time, we're spending a higher, a longer period of time at that high pressure and a shorter period of time at that low pressure. 
just from the math of it, it makes sense then. Our systolics, are, we're spending more time in systole than we are in diastole. So our maps or our mean airway pressures are going to go up. Once again, if we just increase our eye time to a different ratio, we can again achieve pretty similar mean airway pressure just by letting the patient stay at that inspiratory phase for a longer period. So in summary, what we do when we have a patient who is, who is hypoxic is number one, we try and increase their mean airway pressure. And the first way we're gonna do that is by increasing our PEEP using our PEEP cable. The reason why I want you to immediately bring that person down to 50% FiO2 is if they're hypoxic at 50% FiO2, you should now increase their PEEP. Don't increase their FiO2, increase their PEEP. So go from 15 to 18, wait a couple of minutes at 18, then you can go up to 20, wait a couple minutes at 20, go up from that. And this kind of matches what our high PEEP lower FiO2 table looks like. If you see here, here are our PEEPs down here at the bottom. Here they're recommending, if you're on a 10 of PEEP, you should only be on 30 of FiO2. I'm being a little bit more judicious with the oxygen than that, but as you see, as they climb up with PEEP, our FiO2 doesn't go above 50% until we hit 20 of PEEP. So that's the way I want you guys to titrate. So leave that FiO2 at 50% and just keep going up on your PEEPs until you get those goal sats of 88%. That way you're get, just making your oxygen more efficient. We're not giving them more toxic oxygen. We're taking that same good amount of oxygen and just making it more efficient. If that doesn't work, your next step is you can talk about increasing your eye time. Now, normally we have an inspiratory to expiratory ratio of one to three, and your vent will try and auto set to around there, but you can increase your eye time all the way of go to going all the way up to almost one to one, where they're spending as much time in inspiration as they are in expiration. This has its own issues because it's often uncomfortable for the patient. You're basically making them hold their breath in and then breathe it out quickly. But if it's for hypoxia, we sometimes need to do it. So you keep going up. And this is what's called inverse ratio. You eventually get to the point that you spend more time in inspiration than you do in expiration. And that's the whole idea behind a bivent or APRV. I'm not saying you guys need to get that fancy, go up from whatever the event is initially set at to around one to one. And then once you get at to, up to that level, you've probably optimized everything you can and it's time to start thinking about other modalities. So the problem with these things as we increase our mean airway pressure, we are actively increasing our mean intrathoracic pressure. And what that's gonna do is that's really going to decrease our amount of preload the heart's getting. Fortunately, most of these patients have been pretty hemodynamically stable, all things considered. They don't have signs, or most of them don't have signs of shock, sepsis, other pathologies. So their MAPS can take it, but just know that if this patient's MAPS were to drop, it might be because you're increasing your mean airway pressure and they're just getting decreased venous, venous uh, return. With that in mind, just a quick caveat, I don't want you guys flooding these patients with fluid to fill up that IVC unless they truly are dry. This is where you start reaching for vasopressors early on. I mean, the patient's going to the ICU anyway. You can go ahead and start them on pressors. It's not going to throw off your disposition. So next alarm we want to talk about is high peak pressures. High peak pressures is probably the most common alarm that we see on the ventilator and the one that for the longest time I just actively ignored. I would just keep pressing the silent button and then walk out of the room before those two minutes island expires. And then when it goes off the next time, it's someone else's problem. So what we need to look at with high peak pressures is high peak pressures, what they indicate is you have high inspiratory pressures. When you're trying to shove that breath down the person's throat, you're just running into a lot of resistance. And you're going to see those peak pressures during the beginning part of inspiration because that's when you're trying to push in the highest amount of air. Now, like we mentioned earlier, the ARD studies talk about trying to get a plateau pressure less than 30. If you guys remember from your ICU rotations or anything, any other time you've seen this, you can figure out your plateau pressures by doing inspiratory holds. Basically, you make the patient hold their breath, and that tells you what pressure is actually being exhibited to that lower part of the lungs. What is the alveoli seeing? How much pressure? The problem is most peak and plateau pressures, while we do all this uh, mental masturbation about when the plateau is higher, when the peak is higher, et cetera, et cetera, know that your peak pressure is always going to be higher than your plateau pressure. I mean, it's the peak. Plateau is going to be less than what your peak is. So if we just simplified in our minds and we aim to make sure our peak pressures are less than 30, then we know our plateau pressures will be less than 30. 
Now, the reason why these patients have high inspiratory pressures is because they have poor compliance. Anytime you have an ARDS picture, you have just stiffer lungs, so they can't really expand. So in order to blow that breath in, you run into a lot of issues that they just have non-compliant lungs. They're filled with fluid, they're filled with anything else, and it just takes a lot of pressure to get up there. Now, some of the literature on these patients have said that these patients have been found to have relatively good compliance compared to classic ARDS. And I'm sure there was some study that said that there's a new one coming out every day. And I would say more often than not, I haven't run into many issues with high inspiratory pressures or high peak pressures with these people. But some of these patients who have COVID are also going to have CHF. They're also going to have a bacterial pneumonia. They're also going to be fluid overloaded. So you will run into occasional episodes of high peak pressure. So that's why we need to know how to deal with it. Despite all the literature saying that, hey, these patients have decent compliance, that's a great thing. I'm happy for it. It makes the management easier, but we should still know how to deal with it. So the number one way we're going to approach this is synchronize it, is we're going to synchronize the patient with the vent. And what that means is we are going to sedate that, just sedate them, very deeply sedate them. These are super sick patients that we need to do everything we can to make sure we are optimizing their respiratory effort. We put a breathing tube in them, not for kicks and giggles. We did it because their own, what they were doing on their own was inadequate. So we're trying to use this fancy machine to actually breathe for them. And we need to make sure they're compliant with it. We don't want them coughing. We don't want them trying to double stack breaths. We just want them to be nice, sedated, and in line with the vent so that we know if we make vent changes, the patient will see those changes. With that in mind, if you're having issues, these patients, you should have a low threshold to paralyze them. If they are coughing nonstop, if they are double triggering the vent, they're doing anything else where we're just not able to tolerate our peak pressures and they're hypoxic, they're sick, paralyze them. You have have sedation on board, they'll be okay with it. They'll, you can apologize to them down the road, but you need to paralyze these patients with appropriate sedation so we can synchronize them with the vent. Number two, maximize efficiency of our vent. This is the simple thing that we often forget to do, but RT is very good at. Make sure our tube isn't kinked. Make sure there's no big mucus plugs. Get a good deep suction in there to try and make sure that there's nothing else that's throwing off how we're delivering the air. The other thing we can do is decompress these patients. And what I mean by that is these patients often, I mean, these patients often have a full belly. They were eating before they came in. Make sure you get an NG tube down there to suction them out to keep that stomach nice and empty. The other thing you can decompress is the actual belly itself. Make sure these patients are in reverse Trendelenburg. Get that abdominal weight off of their lungs. If you let gravity kind of help you and let that belly get pulled down, then our lungs can open up a little bit better. Now, if we do those two things, those are the two easy things. The final thing that we do if we still are running into high peak pressures is we need to decrease our tidal volumes. Remember, we have a big range of tidal volumes that we can do for these patients, and we can watch their CO2 to make sure we're not underventilating them. But the reason we're running into these high pressures is because we're trying to shove more air down into those lungs than they want to have in them. So we can start coming down in our tidal volume. Let's say that male started off on a tidal volume of 500. Let's next turn it down to 450. I normally go down from 20 to 50 at a time, somewhere like that. But come down to, let's say we're at 500, come down to 450 and watch them for a minute or check back in a minute to see if the peak pressures drop. It's not going to be instantaneous, but just give them a little bit, just keep coming down on the volume little bits at a time. As we come down on the volume, you're eventually going to find a steady state for yourself. And you can either go ahead and increase your respiratory rate to make up for it, or just say, hey, let's see how the patient does. Get a gas in 20 minutes and see what their CO2 looks like. And you can always titrate their respiratory rate. So the final alarm, again, not a really a true alarm, is going to be critical labs for these patients. And the, critical, the only critical lab that I actually care about is acidosis. Are these patients super acidotic? Now, if it's a metabolic acid, acidosis, and I'm assuming that most of you guys can figure out now how it's a, either it's a metabolic or respiratory. If it's a metabolic acidosis, you guys are the single best doctors in the whole hospital at fixing metabolic acidosis. Resuscitate them. Do whatever else needs to be done. But at the same time, don't go too crazy with fluids. These patients, I would recommend doing five a time. Any amount of extra fluid that you give them, their lungs are super inflamed. All of that extra fluid is going to go to the lungs. Even if they have a great heart, they're going to flood their lungs. So do 500 cc boluses, kind of nice and slow, and just continue to recheck from there. You can also consider even a bicarb infusion. If there's some other reason why they're acidotic, whether it's a DKA picture, now you guys are fixing that with insulin, or just they have a significant lactic acidosis initially that just is going to take time to go away now that we're oxygenating them better. Consider a bicarb infusion just temporary because that will also prevent you from 
giving a bunch of IV fluids. Bicarb, instead of your maintenance fluids, or in, instead of doing 500 cc boluses of LR, do 500 cc boluses of bicarb, little things like that. Now, if it's a respiratory acidosis, that's where we start running into trouble. So the first question I want you to ask yourself is, do I really care? Can I just ignore this? These patients are the ideal patients for permissive hypercapnia. As long as the CO, as long as the pH is greater than 7.2, I don't give a crap what their CO2 is. Their CO2 can be as high as it, whatever level it is, that's fine. As long as their pH is greater than 7.2, it's not really going to matter. We're not going to have cardiovascular effects with it. They've done studies looking at pigs where they pump pigs full of CO2 and have constant bicarb infusions going to keep their pH balanced. And you can get pigs with pHs of 7.4, CO2s of 500, and bicarbs of like 60. And they do just fine. The hypercapnia on its own isn't going to cause the issues. The pH will. So as long as their pH is better than 7.2, you're fine with it. However, if our pH does drop below 7.2, then we need to make changes, especially if the patient's getting more hypotensive, tachycardic, more ectopy, things like that. So number one, we increase minute ventilation. And the way we're going to do that is going to be very nonspecific, nebulous, kind of make it up as you go. So in a lot of patients, we'll say, let's increase their respiratory rate first. As long as your respiratory rate is less than 35, you're probably fine. So if that patient is still in your initial vent settings with a respiratory rate of 20, jack it up to 28. You've got plenty of room to go there. So go up on the respiratory rate first. However, if you start running into kind of the edge of that and your respiratory is in the mid or low to mid 30s, then maybe we start talking about increasing our tidal volume. So you can just increase your tidal volume and as long as the peak pressure allows it, you'll be fine. So just use those two things to titrate. There's never going to be a, a slam dunk every time increase your race first, other times increase your volume first. You just kind of have to look at the patient. Maybe they measured the patient, they were super short, and they only were given a 250 cc initial tidal volume. They can probably tolerate a little bit more than that. It's not like they've been breathing 250 cc's for their whole life. So you can come up on the volume first. But I would say, rule of thumb, most patients increase your rate first. So when all else fails, when you guys have done all of the other modifications and we're still running to, into alarms, we need to think about what our next steps are. So let's say our patient is severely hypoxic. We have SATs of 82% and you've done everything. You've bumped up their PEEP, you've increased their eye time, you've paralyzed them, you've done all of those things. This is often the point where you'll tell yourself, hey, is that a good waveform? Do we need to check something else? Maybe ask the RT to get an ABG or maybe they've already got an ABG and you see this. pH is 7.3, that's fine. PCO2 of 65, don't care. But a PO2 of 45, despite being on a PEEP of 25 and an FiO2 of 100%, Obviously not ideal for this patient and not something we don't want to leave them on hundred percent for a long time. We can't leave them on the we can't leave them on these things one because they're just they're not doing well. They got SATs of 82%. So we need to do something else about it. The next step that we found to be beneficial, and I'm not yet sure how feasible this is going to be in an emergency department, though if everywhere else gets run over, we're gonna to have to start doing it, is proning these patients. And the physiology behind it actually is pretty cool. So with this is a CT scan of a patient with just a kind of generic patient with COVID uh, ARDS. Though we can see kind of ground glass stuff everywhere, a lot of our patients have more peripheral ground glass and the ground glass opacities often will settle back into the basilar aspects of the lungs or the posterior aspects because gravity is going to help them go there. With that in mind, most of our perfusion in a normal person also goes with gravity. So the blood just goes with gravity. The patient's laying in the bed. It's going to go to this lower part of the lungs that are knocked out with all that ground glass, with all that edema. If we flip that patient upside down, now we can start actually uh, perfusing the area of the lung that is much better ventilated. So this is how we can improve our VQ mismatch. We can just give more blood to the good part of the lung. And this is something that's been shown to be very effective in a lot of patients. And now even some of the places are using it, this on patients who don't even have breathing tubes in, putting them on high flow nasal cannula or something else and just flipping them on their stomach. So that's an option for hypoxia. So let's say we fix the hypoxia. The patient's now prone. Uh, we're doing great from that standpoint. But but they start becoming more and more hypercapnic. And this is the next gas that we get. Got a pH of 7.05, not ideal. We got a PCO2 that's climbing up of 95. We got a PO2 of 55. Hey, great, we did good, guys. Uh, and a bicarb of 19. And this is still that patient on pretty maximal settings. We've increased their inspiratory time, so they're not breathing out as well. And that's why our uh, CO2 is building up. And let's say their pressures are starting to drop a little bit more. So what can we do for them? As far as bicarb goes, I will normally tell you, if you give bicarb to a patient with a respiratory acidosis, I will 
either physically or metaphysically slap you. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. Giving bicarb to a respiratory acidosis does not fix the problem. You're just giving them bicarb, which then turns into CO2, which then worsens the, meta, the respiratory acidosis if you can't clear it. However, in these patients, you might not have a choice. These patients, if they're becoming so acidotic that they're starting to having hemodynamic complications of it, bicarb still will give you a tiny amount of benefit. The big thing, though, is that a drip of bicarb will be more efficient than pushing boluses or pushing amps. And the thought process behind this is, is if you give someone a huge slug of bicarb, one of those 50 cc, 8.4% amps, that bicarb is very, very quickly going to get converted to PCO2. And basically, will happen so quick because you're giving this huge volume of it that their PCO2 is going to shoot up initially. If you're already maximally ventilating this patient based off of whatever settings you have them on, you're not gonna be able to clear that CO2 fast. So you're just gonna give them a huge new slug of CO2, which is going to make them worse. There's not a bunch of like hydrogen ions floating around that bicarbon grab. You're just gonna be giving them a big amount of PCO2. So you might make them a little bit worse. So I would recommend starting them on a bicarb drip. And a simple way for that, if you order it through Cerner or however you wanna do it, it's the 150 milli equivalents in one liter D5W. You can also grab if there is a liter D5W sitting around the department and you can just put three amps of your big bicarb uh, ampules into it. So you just shoot them in and that's going to get you to that concentration and a good initial rate is 100 cc's an hour. So do that and see what we can figure out next. Sometimes people consider dialysis for these patients or CVVH, CRRT, but once again, it doesn't really work that well. So you're doing all of these things as temporizing measures just hoping that you can get them to the only thing that will fix kind of a refractory, hypoxic, hypercarbic respiratory failure, which is ECMO. So that's always going to be limited with staff and everything else, but it is something that we're starting to use at IU, and I'm sure you guys are going to be using at CMC soon, putting more and more of these patients on ECMO, because it is a pretty much a single organ dysfunction, and ECMO can fix that. So ECMO can make any numbers look pretty again. It can definitely do that, but if patients are this severe, despite you doing all the temporizing measures, you need to be reaching out to Haley, to Hefner, to whoever's on for ECMO to see what we can do to get that patient moving to it. So with this information, you guys are all now certified critical care docs according to my internal certification process. So congratulations to you. You're going to do a great job with it. And more importantly, you will now be able to cover my call shifts over the next couple of months when I go on paternity leave at the end of May. So all that, that's going to be exciting. And that is all I've got for you guys. So any questions? I ignored all the comments during the thing. I can open them up now, but everyone speak up if they got any questions. Hey, Russell, this is Vivek Tyel. How are you doing? Dr. Tyel, how are you doing? Oh, fine. You know, being driven crazy by the residents and the attendings here, but what can I do? Uh, I have a couple questions. Uh, Absolutely. What about artificial surfactant? Have you guys looked into that? And we use it for uh, neonates. Was any word on that for so COVID patients? It's being looked at in vitro, but I think the chances of it being super effective aren't great because these, these patients, their physiology, we still don't exactly understand what's going on because yes, they had this surfactant dysfunction. Yes, they get this severe hypoxia, but their peak pressures and their compliance isn't actually that terrible. So the level of edema doesn't seem to be like really shutting down your ability to deliver oxygen to the alveoli. So we're not sure like how much surfactant would work would help out these patients. They're just a very weird physiology. We don't understand it completely. They're not like our typical ARDS patients. So I think they are doing like some in vitro stuff. And I'm sure some peds hospital somewhere is going to start a actual study for it. But as of now, we're not using it. And I haven't heard of any big centers using it. Okay. What, um, number two, uh, what, uh, with the high peeps? I mean, uh, are you making a bad situation worse? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So I don't think so because if we're when normally when we're bumping up our peeps even to the 2025 again we're just shooting for plateaus less than 30 or uh, yeah peaks and plateaus less than 30 driving pressures less than 15 and it really helps out our driving pressures. We found that those higher peeps actually do improve your lung compliance a little bit more because it stretches out it recruits more alveoli so we can distribute that breath more evenly to the lungs. In short like a peep of 20 or 85 likely isn't going to cause that much barotrauma. When they've done transesophageal probes to so look at like the actual intrathoracic and the trans 
plural pressures for them, it doesn't look to be that bad with peeps of 20 and right. peeps of 25. More the, more of the issues we've been running into is you can bot, if someone has like a really crappy heart that's preload dependent, we've been bottoming out their pressures from giving them that much peep. Is there any um, a value to putting the patient in alternating to cubitus position based on the fact that you use prone sometimes? So absolutely. That is something they've been talking about. Weingart actually mentioned something about that in a podcast, in a podcast recently, he called it uh, the uh, split or the uh, pig roasting technique where basically you just keep having the patient basically on their own, just kind of roll over into different positions and it keeps shifting their lungs. It keeps them kind of, it's almost like a recruit maneuver on its own and helps if the patient is awake they'll actually normally move to the position that's most comfortable for them and that's often where they can breathe the best so some places when they are running out of icu beds and they're putting these patients on high flow nasal cannula on the floor they're just telling the patients kind of roll around in the bed okay are yeah. you doing any ultrasound while you're doing that critical care fellowship you can't do ultrasound on these patients, Dr. Tayo. What, what, what's the indication well, for it? They all get CT know, screened anyway. You know ultrasound kills COVID, right? So, <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thanks, Russell. Absolutely. So real quick, I'm gonna, I saw uh, Dr. Murphy put a, uh, put a comment or put a question on here about proning these patients immediately after intubation. I think it is a great idea to do. I think we would be maximizing them early on. The the limitations to it would be one, just the staff associated with that, having the staff having to go in there and flip the patient over immediately. And often if they're doing it right after intubation, we say that's when they have the maximum aerosolization is right after you've intubated them. So that's been a limiting factor for it. But more than anything, it's, yeah, it's been staff as the kind of the thing that's slowing us down the most. The other thing, uh, the, but if we can prone them earlier, proning them earlier is better. That's something we can definitely do to help. We've mostly been saving proning for, hey, the severe patients who it doesn't help at this point, who the other vent management stuff isn't helping, let's go ahead and prone them. Uh, let's prone them later on. It just, it's, I'm trying, I guess I'm talking in circles here. Basically, it's the, uh, it's the practical aspects of it, getting RT in there while you're proning the patient, having three nurses in there while you're proning the patient, just the additional staff that have to go into the, cont the contaminated room for it. So we're using it as kind of our refractory thing to minimize our staff exposure. But I think later on, we'll, we'll start using it more and more up front, especially if it can reduce ventilator days for these patients. Uh, looks like uh, Gardner, uh, thank you, Blake, for your question. We'll go ahead and ignore that one. Uh, Dr. Gardner was asking with the, split, with the spit roasting technique, we've been avoiding using the uh, non-invasive pot of pressure ventilation. So we're still holding, we, we are doing the same thing. We're not using yet CPAP and BiPAP on these patients and we're not using high flow nasal cannula. The high flow nasal cannula might be changing here shortly. Ervo, one of the companies that makes one of the high flow nasal cannulas actually just did their own study looking at what happens if you put a, a surgical mask on top of a high flow nasal cancelization from that was pretty not changed from just someone at their baseline without a surgical mask. So with that in mind, especially as we are running out of vents and these patients just need a little bit of extra oxygen from high flow, we might start using that more, but at least at the main hospitals here, we haven't started doing that yet. All right. I think I hit most of the questions on here. Uh, yeah. Anyone? Let's see, uh, Dr. Jackson, I miss you, buddy. Uh, going back to your slide about improving oxygenation with regards to PEEP and eye time, are you increasing them both incrementally or are you just going back up on PEEP first to an upper limit and then changing the eye time? Good question, so I say PEEP first. I, I'm, I'm a believer in PEEP first because when you increase that eye time, a lot of times you have to use more sedation to get them, to get the patient to be more compliant with that because you're changing their normal breathing patterns. Now, if the patient's completely knocked out, you can do whatever you want to them and they don't have a choice in it. The vent's going to do it for them. But I normally go up on PEEP first. And then once I get maybe to a PEEP of 20-ish, then I might say, hey, let's start playing around with that eye time. But normally PEEP is going to be my big thing. Okay. Uh, Dr. Runyon asked the question that's on everyone's mind right now. So what about multiple patients on one vent? We haven't gotten to the point of doing that here yet, but I'll put out a shout out to one of my co-fellows that I can, when I submit, when I upload this lecture, I can give you this information too. He's actually created a system that we, that you can plug in line with a split vent tubing. 
so that we can flows going to both patients. Because the big issue is, <laughs> I appreciate that, Stephen. He has dibs on being y pieced with Dr. Tyel. Uh, so the big issue with putting two patients on a vent is one, you have to make sure they're both completely sedated versus paralyzed. Like you can't have one of them doing stuff that the other one doesn't want to be, that the other one's not doing. So if we get to that point, the next thing we have to do is we have to use pressure control for these ventilate for these patients. So they have to get a pressured breath. We can't care what the volume is. It just has to be pressured. So the vent's going to deliver a certain amount of pressure and then back off. If we try and do volume for the vent, which is what the SCCM guidelines when they came out and said, hey, you guys definitely shouldn't be doing it. They were talking about volume control. And that makes sense. We can't set a set volume to deliver to two patients. Because let's say one patient twists his head a little bit and his ET tube kings. Now, instead of getting a thousand milliliters divided between two patients, one patient is going to get that full thousand. It's going to shoot them up. However, if we do pressure, control, we will limit the same pressure and it's just going to be based off of their lung compliance. The problem is we have to make sure they're getting appropriate volumes and that's where my buddy's uh, device that he's created that can actually monitor the individual tidal volumes would be super helpful. We have to be just watching their tidal volumes closely and then they have to have relatively similar compliance so that the same PEEP is working for them, the same overall pressure control is working for them. So it is possible, and I think it's actually going to be practical if we start running out of uh, if we start running out of vents. That is going to be an option, and we're definitely going to push that hard here at IU. But right now, that those are the kind of the thought processes going on with it. Uh, any utility looking at the compliance numbers on the vent? Chris, I'm very proud of you that you can find the compliance numbers on the vent. That really is impressive. You've clicked around on enough buttons on there to find the compliance. That just basically means you were trying to change some setting and you couldn't figure out how, so you just kept pressing buttons. So you can look at the compliance numbers on the vent, but does anyone actually know what the compliance numbers mean? When they see, when they see, when you like see the number on the compliance is like 50, I would sit there, I would kind of nod and go, hmm, yes, it's 50. That's much better than 40, I think. Or is it worse than 60? Like the compliance numbers mean next to nothing to me. I care about the peak pressures because the peak, peak pressures and the plateau pressures are going to tell me my compliance. If my peak pressure and my plateau pressures are super high, then my compliance is crappy. Like I don't need quantification of it. It's like getting an EF on an ED echo. Like I don't care what the actual EF is. I just care that if is it, is it good or is it bad? Like that, that's really what matters. So that's why I don't look at the compliance numbers. That's why I'm also not a pulmonologist. And my, as my pulmonary critical care colleagues remind me of every single day. Alrighty. I appreciate it guys. If there's nothing else. Thank you so much, Dr. Chagonis. It was lovely hearing you again. We appreciate your time. Absolutely. I miss you guys. And uh, congrats again. Lovely last photo. We really like that. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Yeah, baby boy Trigona should be coming end of May, early June. Awesome. That's what we're Fingers crossed, at least. We'll see. Send our uh, best to your better half. Always do. All right. Um, All right. Thank you guys for letting me on. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. Seems he out.